The information contained in this podcast is an expression of opinion and does not constitute investment advice. This is the Gold Money Foundation podcast with Dominic Frisbee, keeping you up to date with expert opinion on precious metals and the markets. Hello and welcome to the Gold Money podcast hosted in association with Frisbee's Bulls and Bears with me, Dominic Frisbee. Now, I'm sitting with a colleague of mine from Money Week. He is Simon Caulfield. Simon is a mathematician who worked in industry as an engineer for 10 years before doing an MBA and becoming a consultant to the financial industry for 13 years. Is that right? Yes. That's right. And um, then from 2001 to 2007, he founded and uh, ran and then sold his own software company. And then in 2007, he started managing his own wealth. He became a private investor. Uh, a couple of years ago, he started writing a newsletter for Money Week magazine based on the principles of value investing. And that newsletter is called True Value. Now, Simon, uh, welcome to the show. It's a great pleasure to be talking to you. Thank you, Dominic. Nice to be here. And um, I suppose we should start off with uh, some of the issues raised uh, in your presentation at the Money Week conference uh, a few months back. Okay. Uh, it was an excellent presentation, very well received, very thorough um, and uh, with a very different approach to investing um, t to me, I, I should say, I, I tend to kind of make judgments based on a chart, whereas, you know, you use your your skills in applied mathematics. Um, but overall, your take, um, let's start with equity markets. Your take uh, on equity markets was pretty bearish. Um, why is that? Yes, that's right. And it, it may help to start off by saying that although I, I'm primarily a value investor, I think of myself as a stock picker. Um, I also believe that you can add value and you should add value um, with a little bit more of a macro view. And what I mean by that is not trying to understand what's going on in the Eurozone and taking advantage of that. I think that's probably impossible. Um, but rather what uh, a little bit what uh, like uh, uh, Jeremy Grantham does at GMO, where he tries to spot bubbles um, in asset prices and take advantage of them either by being long or being short. And so, although I'm a stock picker, I also tend to spend a lot of time thinking about whether stock markets as a whole are under or overvalued. And the the, um, the point that I that I tried to make in the in the uh, Money Week conference was that um, stock markets are indeed uh, overvalued, most of them at least, uh, particularly in the U.S. And the bulls will tell you that, um, you know, S&P 500 companies, for example, are making about $100 a share in profits right now. The average PE on the S&P 500 over the long run has been about 15, 15 and a half. And therefore, fair value for the S&P 500 is about 1500. Um, and my argument is that that's rubbish. Um, uh, and one good way of, uh, of, of illustrating that is to say that in, in the final quarter of 2009, S&P 500 companies made profits of precisely zero. And 15 times zero, last time I checked with all of my mathematics. <laughs> is, Even uh, I can work that one out. <laughs> exactly. And so, it, it, you know, and clearly it was ridiculous to say that stocks were worthless in, uh, in um, did I say 2009? I meant 2008, the, um, the, the, the quarter after Lehman Brothers went, went down. 
Um, so early in 2009, it was ridiculous to say that stocks were worth zero. It's just as ridiculous to say that stocks are worth 1500 on the S&P right now. And the, the reason for the discrepancy is, is not the price earnings multiple, it's the earnings. Yeah. And you just have this extraordinary situation um, right now where just about everything is going in favor of, of company profits. You know, we have interest rates which are indistinguishable from zero. We have bond yields which are virtually zero. We have um, central banks stimulating the economy and printing money. We have governments running huge deficits. And it's not generally appreciated, but when a government runs a deficit, that goes straight into company profits. So in fact, in 2000... How is that? Um, well, it's a bit of a long story, but it's an interesting one. Okay, let's come back to it. Okay. Carry on with, with uh, why the current situation is better yes. than the stock market. And another addition to that is, uh, certainly for the American stock markets, money fleeing Europe. Indeed. I mean, you, you can scarcely think of anything that's, that's, that's acting against um, uh, 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 boosting company earnings and asset prices. And of course, um, uh, particularly in the, in the value investing community, we believe that, uh, that things revert to the mean. Yeah. And so you don't, you don't need many of those things to revert to the mean before profits get decimated. The problem is we have a trend in place, certainly in, in the US, and, you know, stocks are rising based on that trend, and trends can, you know, the market can stay irrational a lot longer than you can say solvent. So at what point, I mean, I, I kind of agree with you, but, you know, I could say the same about London property, and yet, you know, how long have we been waiting for London property to fall? So at, at what point do you, do you, you know, turn your bearish thoughts into bearish trades. Well, I suppose I should say that it's um, it, it's the it's the bane of value investors' lives that we're always too early. Yeah, <laughs> we're too early to sell, and we're also too early to buy. Typically, yeah. so um, it's uh, it, it's surely an area in which um, which I, I myself have been a bit too early, but. Um, the, one of the things that I look at is that I do t keep a very close eye on the quarterly earnings of the S&P 500 companies. And um, uh, one of the things that has been noticeable for almost a year now is that the rate of earnings growth has been declining. And in fact, if you look at the, the most recent quarter, um, year over year, um, company profits are only up by about 1% over last year. Um, yeah, I should just say, <laughs> Simon lives in a magnificent flat overlooking the River Thames, but there is a helipad just down the road, and as we speak, we have a helicopter flying past, no doubt driven by Richard Branson or one of Simon's eminent neighbours. <laughs> Maybe it's Jeremy Grantham, I don't know. <laughs> Um, but it, it's gone now, so you carry on, Simon. Okay. Yeah, so what I was saying was that uh, the, the most recent quarterly earnings uh, on the S&P 500 show only a 1% increase year over year. And um, that's, that's looking at earnings per share. And actually, if you correct for the fact that over the last year, companies have been buying back shares by about 3 or 4%, then actually, profits are already down. In terms of dollars, they're still slightly up in terms of dollars per share. Okay. Now, I'm just, 
I just want to dwell a little bit longer on this idea of, of how government policy is, <clears throat> is favouring um, company profits. Um, now, let's just take as an example, I don't know, GlaxoSmithKline or Johnson & Johnson or, so, you know, a, a pharmaceuticals company. Um, you know, if people are buying less of their stuff because there's less money in, in your ordinary Joe's pocket, you know, surely you know, or, or any consumer discretionary stock, how does government, how does, you know, surely that is the bottom line for that company if people are buying less of their stuff? Well, there are two things, um, and I should say I've only, I've only discovered this myself in the last 18 months, um, largely because what I've discovered is that although I'm not an economist, I, I was taught a lot of economics in my MBA and, and I've always been interested in the subject, so I've read about it a lot uh, ever since. And particularly after the financial crisis, I, I felt compelled to try and find out what, you know, what does humankind know about you know, what caused this? Um, and what I've discovered is that most of what I learned, well, most of what I was taught about economics was complete rubbish. Um, and one of the things that they don't talk about very much in economics textbooks is, is where profits come from. Not for the individual company, but in aggregate, for a yeah. whole country or a whole market or something like that. Um, because when you think about it, um, wages are both the vast majority of a company's costs mm -hmm. and also the ultimate source of their revenues. Yeah. And so, actually, when you work through it, um, uh, wages, companies can't, you know, for, for example, companies can't, in aggregate, cut wages or cut jobs and increase profits. Individual companies can, but if you fire a lot of people, all that means is they have less spending power to spend on other things. And so, where, where profits actually come from, um, and, and I should give credit to um, the Levy Forecasting Center in New York. This, this idea of where profits come from was originally derived in 1914, <clears throat> excuse me, by a guy called Jerome Levy. Um, and uh, of course, because it was nothing, because it was went against a, lo a lot of what mainstream economists believed at the time, um, it never became popular or widely accepted. In fact, was completely independently derived 20 years later by a Polish economist called Kalecki, um, and it's sometimes known as the Kalecki profits equation. And it says that the prime source of profits um, uh, are investment. And the reason that investment creates profits is because when a company invests in a fixed asset, you know, a new machine, a new building, uh, software, um, uh, anything like that, anything that goes in the what we used to call in the UK the fixed asset part of the balance sheet, um, they are of course effectively paying the wages of the people who develop the asset, but they're not incurring any costs because mm -hmm. when you buy an asset, it doesn't go through the profit and loss account. You're simply swapping cash on your balance sheet for a fixed asset. Um, but those wages go into the economy and people use them to spend on goods and services and that creates revenue for, for other companies. So um, unlike when a, when a consumer goods company buys 
you know, packaging material to put their toothpaste in, mm-hmm. um, that's that that's a cost. Yeah, it runs the cost runs through the the profit and loss account. So, um, uh, investment sort of creates wages for free, if you know what I mean. Yes, yeah. it's, it's kind of an interesting idea, um, and therefore it it turns out to be. Um, the most important source of company profits. It also gives rise to the interesting conclusion that that capital goods companies are really important in the economy. They're much more important than consumer goods companies. Uh, And maybe that's something to do with why Japan in the past and Germany um, in particular have, have, uh, have fantastic economies, have had fantastic economies because these, uh, these capital goods companies, they, they, um, are much better at creating profits than consumer goods companies. In fact, consumer goods companies only can only make money because of capital goods companies, because the wages which are created in capital goods companies allow us to spend more on consumer goods than the consumer goods companies pay us in wages. Um, so that turns out to be a really important source of, um, uh, of company profits. And um, there are two others. One is exports, because then you get foreigners to pay domestic wages and they get spent in the domestic economy. Um, and, the, and, the, uh, and the final one, and this is not such a good answer, is debt. Because when we borrow, we're able to spend more on goods and services in the economy than the companies pay us in wages. Yeah. And so when you look at, um, when you look at the long term, debt has been rising as a proportion of GDP, as a proportion of national, national income for a very, very, very long time. But of course, that all changed in the financial crisis and it now looks as though we'll go through a protracted period of debt deleveraging. Um, and that ultimately means that company profits um, are, are, are low. And when I should just... Is, is debt deleveraging inevitable? Um, I think so, um, because... We've re- we reached a point in, in 2008, 2009, where the total amount of debt was a very, was a higher proportion of our incomes than it was prior to the Great Depression in the US. So there are no hard and fast rules about how much debt an economy can service. But when, when a government has a power to print money, when you have, you know, a money whose supply is not finite, uh, when there's a, d- a definite, you know, I'm going to say the word, there is a definite conspiracy to keep the debt bubble going. Does de- debt deleveraging become inevitable then? Um, well, I, it's, a, it's a complicated question. It's an important question and it's a difficult question. Um, I would say two things about that. One is... Um, at least the way that central banks are choosing to print money, uh, it benefits um, it benefits the wealthy. Yeah. It benefits those who own assets, and it benefits the banks. Um, in particular, it benefits those who own government bonds because they buy government bonds. Um, and frankly, there's precious little evidence that it that it benefits ordinary people in the economy. I mean... In my opinion, it exacerbates the wealth gap. Yes, yes. Um, 
I mean, unemployment hasn't really got much better in in four years of printing money. Yeah. Um, asset prices, particularly government bond prices, have gone through the roof. And uh, if, you know, if you happen to own government bonds, then you've done very nicely out of it. The second thing that I would say is that, um, uh, and I think this is not generally appreciated, that if you it, if you think of, in terms of credit, um, the governments are running huge huge uh, deficits, but they're not borrowing enough currently. They haven't borrowed enough over the last few years to offset the destruction of debt in the private sector. Yeah. Because, of course, central banks create money um, through quantitative easing and all that stuff. Top. Yes. Um, but money can also be destroyed, is destroyed, whenever we repay debt. Commercial banks yeah. create money as well. Yeah. And what has been happening is that uh, the central bank money printing has got, gotten a lot of publicity, but what hasn't got a lot of publicity is the, is the destruction of money, the destruction of credit uh, in the, by commercial banks. And so far, at least, um, although it's not widely appreciated, the central banks have not printed enough money to overcome the destruction of money in the private sector. Now, and, and um, you've, got to, you've got to watch very carefully to see whether they do. So far, they haven't. And my sense is that, that, that they're getting a bit more reluctant to, um, to up the ante. They won't stop, don't get me wrong, yeah. they won't stop, um, but uh, they'll have to do a whole lot more to overcome the debt destruction in the private sector. I, I would agree with that. Um, you know, you hear a lot of kind of, oh, they're going to print money, it's the only option they've got. But, you know, there was a lot of noise about, you know, people complaining when they printed that money. And, you know, it's easy to say these guys are stupid, but you don't get to be at the top of a central bank by being stupid. Um, and, you know, they, they must be aware that to an extent it is exacerbating the wealth gap. And, you know, even though you do, to an extent, believe in crony capitalism, I do think some of these people, you know, don't want that wealth gap to be exacerbated. They do genuinely want to help, you know, the man on the street. So, yeah, I, I would agree that they're going to be a lot more careful before the next round of quantitative easing. Having said that, the Bank of England, I'm thinking of, of Ben Bernanke, actually, when I say that. And, you know, the stock markets are in an upward trend at the moment to a degree, so there isn't the same pressure. There is more pressure on... I think Mervyn King is trying to act a bit more preemptively after what happened in 2008. Yes, so, yes. Well, you, you say that central bankers are not stupid, and, and I have to say that... Um, uh, up until quite recently, I, I thought that must be the case. Uh, you can't, as you said, you can't get to be head of the central bank um, by being uh, stupid. But, me, okay, go on. But, I, I'm going to qualify that statement yes. in a second, but go on, you go first. One of the things that I discovered in my research over the last 18 months, along with this idea of the profits equation, um, uh, were, was um, the fact that mainstream economists are all taught and therefore they believe that debt doesn't matter. Now, I know that seems extraordinary, but in the course of my research, um, 
you know, the, the guru of the, of the, the kind of left-wing um, side of, of mainstream economies, arguably, is Paul Krugman. Yeah. And Paul Krugman has said that people get debt completely wrong because they think of it as, as the same way that they think about their own debt. Do you think they all agree with Krugman? Yes. Yes, I do. Um, I mean, he says debt is money that we owe ourselves because I can only borrow and spend if you scrimp and save. Mm -hmm. The banks intermediate between us, yeah. but I can only borrow and, uh, and spend because you scrimp and save. And Ben Bernanke, who's on the kind of right wing of mainstream uh, economists, he essentially agrees. Of course, every, everybody knows he's an expert on the Great Depression. And um, uh, he wrote uh, in his, I think, 2004 piece, Essays on the, on the Great Depression, he wrote that what happened was um, uh, creditors, uh, sorry, debtors simply repaid creditors. So um, that, tr that spending power mm -hmm. that... that uh, that used to belong to debtors was simply transferred back to creditors. Now, how, if I spend less and now you spend more, how could that cause the Great Depression? So Ben Bernanke completely dismisses debt as having any role in, in the Great Depression. So you have, in mainstream economists, whether you have the, the, on the left with, with the Krugmanites or, or on the right with, with Bernanke and others and most central bankers, everybody agrees that debt doesn't matter. And so this is why they all missed the financial crisis, Dominic. Okay. It's because none of them, well, none of the mainstream economists believe that debt matters. It's why the only people who have, who, um, who you can, who can demonstrate predicted the financial crisis are those, um, relative fringe economists. Yes. Fringe economists, the Austrians, and um, uh, and and those who who, who follow Minsky and and uh, and Schumpeter, um, uh, even Karl Marx, uh, who who believe that debt matters. By the way, at this point, I'm going to give myself a little plug. Have you seen my debt bomb video? I have. Okay, I good. Have. Yes. <laughs> yes. Any listeners haven't seen it? Type in debt bomb into YouTube. There yep. we go. Yeah. It's an extraordinary. Um, it's an extraordinary finding. I mean, uh, I, I when when I when I read this stuff and I started to try and understand what it really meant, I, I found my my head spinning for for days. But um, uh, the extraordinary thing is true that mainstream economists believe that debt, at least private sector debt. They, so okay, so these aren't stupid people, but they are. They have a flawed ethos, if you like. And I mean, what I was going to qualify it with is, is, you know, certainly central banks are effectively government machines and government machines by their own nature, because they're not profit driven, tend to be inefficient. Yep. So even if you have, you know, a clever guy or it's full of clever people, it is still, you know, that doesn't mean the right decisions will necessarily be made. Yeah. Um, OK, let's let's move on. So you're bearish on the stock market. I still haven't quite identified the point at which you go short. Are you short at the moment? Or? I am slight, slightly. Um, OK. Uh, not uh, not hugely. I, I'm I'm not terribly comfortable being short. I yeah. mean, I'm, I made money in 2008, not by being short, but um, uh, but by owning the dollar and government bonds. And yeah. um, 
Uh, maybe the dollar you could still play in, in 2012, 2013, but you sure as hell can't own government bonds like you could in 2008. Yeah, well, that's, I've got on my list of questions to ask you, government bonds. I mean, how, how low can the yield go or how, how high can they go, if you see what I mean? Um, it, it's another very, very difficult question. It, you know, if I'm right... Um, debt deleveraging could easily cause us to have a protracted period of deflation or near deflation, um, and therefore government bonds still have some some tailwinds. Uh, I don't own. I mean, any- how low can I mean? Are we going to get negative? People, are we going to pay the government to own their bonds? I mean, effectively, we do now. But well, um, I mean, short. Short government bonds, two years in, in you know, two-year government bonds in a lot of places are showing negative, uh, uh, negative real, real yields, aren't they? Um, nom- in nominal terms, I guess Japan is what not much more than about ten-year Japanese government bonds is not much more than about eighty basis points, but uh, that's still a positive real yield because they have no no inflation whatsoever. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if if government bonds. Um, do go, uh, uh, do fall some more, but um, I don't. The own, yields, you mean? Yeah, yeah. sorry, the yields could fall. Uh, some I mean, more. I agree. I don't own any, and I don't recommend anybody does own anybody because I mean, I, I spend a, I still spend quite a mo- amount of time in the U.S. and you wouldn't believe how much money is poised waiting for government bond yields to turn up. Okay. So I think when it happens, it will happen just like that. Yeah, I mean... And, and private investors will get killed in the rush. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, you, it, it's almost like you need to be sitting in front of your screen all the time so yes, that you catch exactly. it. Okay. The other thing that I'd say is that um, one, of the, one of the factors that, of course, is, uh, has bid down um, government bond yields is, is buying by China. Um, and... Uh, I have a sneaking suspicion that uh, that China might might start selling sometime soon. Yeah. So even if we do get deflation, will we know? It's hard to know. I mean, the the the, the federal uh, sorry, not the Federal Reserve, the the U.S. Treasury does publish statistics on who's buying. Um, the trouble is that uh, quite a lot of the buying uh, takes place in offshore centers, and you can't identify yeah. the original the original yeah. buyer or seller. You can only identify the center. Um, so, uh, so nobody ever really knows um, who's doing the buying. You can follow the total amount of reserves held in dollars um, by, the, by, um, by central banks around the world, but they don't publish that information very frequently, and it's, yeah. not, it's a lot out of date. Um, but, but that is, then I agree. I mean, I don't think it, the time is now. I did think it was 2008, actually, and I was wrong. Uh, but the next great short is government bonds. Um, but this is a bull market that's gone on since, I guess, is it 1981? Yes, indeed. So, so yes. What is that, 31 years? Yep. Let's hope that we get a similar... And if you look at the chart, it's a similarly well-behaved chart. I'm talking if you look at a long-term log chart of gold, which is kind of, in a way, you know, it's a different form of... It's a different yep. store of wealth. Let's hope that we get a similar... 32-year bull market in gold. And let's, let's as our kind of last topic, I want to ask you a little bit about oil as well, but let's just uh, talk about gold. I know you like gold. Um, what are your, what's your view on gold at the moment? Um, well, I own gold in the, in the portfolio, um, more gold than, uh, than, than mining stocks. And um, 
you know, as a value investor, I, I'm uncomfortable owning anything that I can't value. Yeah. And of course, it's just about impossible to value gold. So um, three or four years ago, uh, I wasn't early into gold, um, but three or four years ago when I started worrying about central bank policy and government policy and thought I should own some gold in the portfolio, I set out to try to find a way of putting a value on gold or at least giving myself some comfort that I was buying something that, that wasn't about to, you know, I wasn't buying something that was overvalued. And in all the work that I did, the one thing that I, I discovered was a good um, predictor of, of, uh, of, the, of the gold price was, was real interest rates. Yeah. Um, and uh, for example, one of the things that I discovered that, that in, if you look at the 12 month rolling price, rolling, a change in the rolling price of gold. Sorry, I didn't say that terribly well. The 12 month rolling change in the price of gold um, since uh, 19, since the late 1970s, that it's never been negative when US interest rates um, have been negative. Yeah. So it has always gone up on a rolling 12 month basis when uh, US uh, interest rates, real interest rates are negative. Now, real interest rates have turned up a little bit in the last three or six months. It's not quite as uh, apparent as it was a year ago. Yeah. Um, do you think that's a temporary uptick or do you think it's uh, the end of, the beginning of the end of negative real rates? Um, well, the first thing I should say is that actually when you look at the data, the point at which the trend line crosses the crosses the axis is not real interest rates of zero. It's about two between two and three percent. Yeah, that's it? right. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a little north of of two percent, and so therefore, if if um, I mean, there's always a risk that the the future is not like the past. But uh, on that basis, uh, real interest rates can go to plus two uh, without uh, without the, the the trend in the gold price being interrupted. Um, What's going to drive rates up? Because that's the, that's the big sea change in everything. Um, it certainly isn't going to be the, 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 uh, the central banks, the, the Federal Reserve. There's absolutely no sign. Runaway oil price? Um, I, I think it has to be bond markets. I mean, of course, when you say real interest rates, you, you're forced into, into deciding which measure of interest yeah, rates of matters. And... Um, uh, I, uh, I can therefore only imagine that it'll be, uh, it'll be uh, yields on, bond, on bonds caused by massive selling by uh, emerging market central banks and other, uh, and other investors. As I said, when, when I talk to my, to my, uh, my um, contacts in the US, there is an extraordinary amount of money waiting to go short government bonds. So I suspect that that might be it. Um, but uh, you know the return I, of the bond vigilantes effect, I mean. <laughs> I'm not I'm not expecting that necessarily anytime soon that's why I, I still own gold in the in the portfolio um, but I think I think if you look at if you use 1980 as your model uh, interest rates had to go I think real rates went to something like 10% before the gold price turned it might even have been over 10% 
you know, they went very high. Yes. So because the, the, the initial panic with the interest rates going up so dramatically was a panic and a, and a, and a flood to gold. Yes. So it's, and a rush be, to gold, I should say. Yes, it'll be fascinating. I mean, if it does happen, what, what's the Fed going to do? I mean, is it going to buy... Is it going to buy Chinese? You know, the, yeah, the, I mean, that's the, the Chinese sales. Yeah, I mean, that's that's when you get your real <laughs> runaway inflation and goodness knows what. That's when you want to go. <laughs> goodness me! I mean, I think I do think that's coming. I mean, on that kind of negative positive note, um, I mean, I, I yeah. probably just one one yeah. thing to finish off um, uh, because of what I said earlier that the the world central bankers believe that debt doesn't matter, and therefore. Um, they're going to keep printing money, I think. And it's probably not going to work in terms of driving up inflation as, as most people would measure it in terms of RPI, CPI, that kind of thing. Um, but one day, when we have paid down a reasonable amount of debt and debt can start rising again, the central banks won't be looking at that because they don't think that debt matters. And that's the point, I think, where there's a very good chance of inflation really taking off. Okay, that's an interesting thought. So you still want to own gold then? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just in terms of a valuation model for gold, um, what about the simple one that the more ardent bullish gold bugs like to use of valuing gold by looking at US gold holdings against US debt? I mean, if the dollar were to be, or if, if you, if the, if the U.S. were to pay off its debt with its gold, you you start looking at, you know, ten thousand north prices north of ten thousand dollars. Is that something you consider, or is that just too stratospheric um, for a sensible man like yourself? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I'm aware of, of of those metrics. You know, just as I'm aware of, of you know, some people compare it to um, the money supply. Um, although the question is always which, okay, measure, yeah, which exactly, measure of yeah. money supply should you use. Um, so, you know, it's an argument that seems plausible, seems sensible, but um, the trouble is you just can't validate it because I can't, you know, if you, actually I haven't done it, but I assume if you try to track um, the price of gold against, uh, against US debt or, or global debt, you wouldn't find a, a, a terribly convincing relationship. Whereas, well, if you look at the ratio of U.S. gold of, of, of gold to U.S. debt over the last twelve years of bull market, the, the chart is flat. <laughs> I understood, but yeah. but but um, uh, for me, at least, um, twelve years. You know, in the in the grand scheme of things, twelve years is too short. Yeah. Um, if, if you could show me that that was also true um, between 1981 and 2002 when gold was falling, yeah, then I'd be more convinced. And I don't think it is true for that period. Uh, no, no. Okay, but okay. Here's an argument for you. I, I, I mean, mean it's I not. I'll, I'll send you the chart. Actually, it's not. But, it's not that I rule it out. It's no, just. It's, I, but, it's but, just that it's hard to validate. I mean, if you if you go on the premise that gold, I agree, it's, it is hard to to uh, to validate. But if you go on the premise that gold. Uh, rises during periods of monetary stress and falls during economic booms, basically. Yeah. Um, and you 
you agree that gold is it we are in a period of monetary stress now therefore gold is in a bull market at what point does that bull market end well in 1980 the value of the u.s gold holdings exceeded the u.s monetary base and exceeded u.s debt so why shouldn't the same thing happen again it might and, and don't get me wrong i'm not i'm not ruling it out it's just that um the burden of the, the, the burden of proof i think um I have a very high burden of proof and it's just about passed with my real interest rate theory. Okay. And um, as I said, you know, your relationship works for the last 12 years. Um, It it doesn't necessarily work for for periods where gold has been falling and therefore um, it's a a statement that... um, I have some sympathy for, but I can't. Uh, I can't prove it, and therefore I. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. Okay, two very quick last questions for you. As a value investor, do you currently see value in senior gold mining stocks? Um, you know, I don't really. I don't really look at at, at gold mining stocks. Um, the reason being that I own gold in the portfolio. Um, you know, as an insurance against. Armageddon, uh, and uh, I think that the metal will do much better than the stocks in Armageddon. So I don't really know too much about gold mining stocks, to tell you the truth. Okay, that's a good answer. Oil, what do you think of oil? I I mean, nobody seems to be talking about oil. Maybe I'm reading the wrong material, but I, I just think in terms of, you know, the cost of living, you know, the, 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 you know, oil is such a big factor in that. And, I mean, it's in an uptrend. I know it's, it's fallen over the last few months, but the broader picture is it, it is in an uptrend. I don't own any oil. Um, it's a hard thing to own. No, The absolutely. ETF doesn't work very well, and the, the oil stocks aren't necessarily a play on no, the oil. No, that's right, because they, most of the ETFs, you actually buy one-month futures, don't they? Yeah, Which, you just they... get stung on the Katango. And, exactly. Yeah. Although um, gold's in... Um, the gold one yeah. works well. Sorry, uh, oil is in uh, backwardation right now, isn't it? So uh, uh, that's, that's arguably less a problem. Look, I don't own any oil, but it's absolutely very high on my wish list of things to own. If I'm right and the next uh, couple of years are really tough economically, then I suspect the oil price may suffer. But um, there's, there's no doubt in my mind we're running out of oil Maybe we're not running out of oil in absolute terms, but we're certainly running out of cheap oil, um, and therefore I would um, I would I would own oil. I wouldn't own I wouldn't own oil stocks because I think yeah um, you know Jim Chanos has a great argument against owning oil stocks where he describes them as liquidating um, liquidating trusts because. Um, if you strip out the acquisitions, then they're not finding enough oil to replace yeah. their existing reserves. So uh, I would own oil. You can you can buy ETFs, um, uh, oil ETFs that that um, invest in three-year oil futures, right? Um, and therefore, you suffer less from the contango problems. Um, and so that would be, and and probably for for smart people that, who who know the sector terribly well, there are probably. Um, oil services companies because exploration presumably is going to have to explode Um, uh, and therefore oil services companies probably will do quite well 
but as I say, it's the. It, 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 I would um, further down the road. Yes, I would. I would. Uh, I would think about owning the three-year um, future uh, oil ETF uh, at some point. Very good, Simon Caulfield. You know, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. It's been a fascinating inter- interview across a wide range of subjects. Um, you write a newsletter. Why don't you give your newsletter a plug? Tell us uh, uh, where we can find it, and so on and so forth. Okay. Well, the newsletter is called True Value. Um, you can find it on the uh, on the Money Week website. Um, there's a little uh, uh, newsletter uh, menu that you can click on, and you'll find True Value there. Um, one thing that uh, you might consider doing is that if you subscribe um, effectively, uh, you'll get two months for free. So you can look at all of the back issues and decide whether you like it or not um, before you actually have to commit to paying anything. Very good. Well, Simon Caulfield, thank you very much. Thank you, Dominic. Bye-bye. I should say bye-bye. The, the Money Week website, by the way, is moneyweek.com. <laughs> thank you very much. Bye-bye. Subscribe to the Gold Money newsletter at www.goldmoney.com to receive email updates on new articles, videos, and iTunes podcasts from our Gold Research section. Gold Money.